Heavenly Father, you are so worthy of our praise. You are so worthy of our affection and our adoration. We love you. And I pray right now, Father, that those words of that song, that, that we would run unashamed into your arms because of mercy, would be true for us today, Father. That we would say individually the words of Psalm 20, 73 that says, Who in heaven have I by you? And nothing on earth I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That we would say that and heal it today, Father, as we open up your word. And that you would be glorified and exalted, Father. I pray that your spirit would come here, open our hearts, open our minds to receive your word, Father. That you would give me, your servant, power and strength and ability to be able to communicate clearly. Um, and to be able to communicate the beauty of the glory of Christ through your supernatural power, Father. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. So we are rounding the final corner of the first chapter of Colossians. And next week we're going to be breaking ground in chapter 2, which is an amazing thing, actually, given how long we've been in chapter 1. Um, we've been in this series called The Ministry of Reconciliation, which is looking at how God reconciles the world to himself through believers. How God reconciles this world, the people out there who are unbelievers, through Christians. And we've been looking at the Apostle Paul as he briefly in the book of Colossians explains his role in that ministry. And we're also recognizing in the same way how we also have a part to play. We have a role to play in the ministry of reconciliation. And this week we're going to look at last week's passage one more time and we're going to look at it from a slightly different angle. We're going to, um, so turn to uh, Colossians 1, 25. We're going to go through 25 and 27. You've got your Bible. And we'll read this text one more time. And then we'll jump into it. We're going to start with I became. Colossians 1, 25. Paul says, I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Paul says that God has a mystery that he is making known through the proclamation of his word, through the proclamation of the gospel. And last week we spent a lot of time looking at what the mystery is. What is the mystery? It is, Paul says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery that he's explained to the Gentiles that they are fellow heirs. They've been grafted into the body of believers, the Jewish people. And now they are participants in the riches of glory, of this mystery, the hope of glory. 
So today, the question I want to focus on is, is really simple. How does God reveal this to the saints? How does he go about revealing it to um, his people? And Paul tells us that God has revealed it to the saints, which is really interesting that he uses that language. It doesn't say he's revealed it to the world. It doesn't say that he's revealed it to the Jewish people. It doesn't say that he's reviewed it to, re revealed it to the Gentiles even. It says that God has revealed it to the saints. Why only the saints? Why mention those people specifically, God's redeemed people? Well, it obviously doesn't mean that Paul only preaches to future believers. Paul preaches to everyone and everywhere. In, in Colossians 1.23, he says the gospel has been proclaimed in all creation, which means everywhere. Earlier on in the chapter, he says it is bearing fruit throughout the entire world. So the gospel is preached universally. But he's saying here that for some reason, God reveals the mystery to his saints. This mystery that we're looking at. And the questions are, A, how does God do this? And B, why do it this way? And that's really what we're going to spend the rest of our time uh, together today on. This is a big deal. Because for the Colossian church and for us 2,000 years later, this sets the posture of the believer, the Christian, in their ministry of reconciliation. It gets our compass set to a true north. It helps us calibrate who we are in Christ, how we came to be believers. How did God reveal this mystery to us individually through the gospel? And I believe the clearest passage in all of Scripture on this subject is actually 1 Corinthians 1. So if you could flip over from Colossians, I'm sorry, to 1 Corinthians. We're going to spend most of our time today in 1 Corinthians 1. Verse 17 is where we will start. And here's some context. Paul is writing to the Corinthian church because there are divisions, profound divisions in the Corinthian church. And these divisions are lined up with preachers that they've had, teachers. Some people really love Paul. They think he's a great communicator. Some people really love Peter. They call him Cephas, Cephas in this text. They think he's the best. And some people like a guy by the name of Apollos. <laughs> but Paul is saying here that specific teachers should not create division among you. Because his burden at the beginning of this letter, at least, is that I'm not Christ. I'm not Jesus. I didn't die for you, and you were not baptized in my name. I am merely, and these other teachers are merely servants of the gospel. And even more importantly, Paul wants them to know that the gospel doesn't save people through rhetorical speech and natural wisdom. It doesn't save people like that. So you should not be impressed with preachers. What saves people is the power of God. And this is the exact same thing that he's referring to the, to the Colossians when he says he's, God has chosen to reveal it to them, to his saints, the mystery Christ in you, the hope of glory. So I'm going to read the first five verses of this text in 1 Corinthians 1, starting with verse 17. There's a lot here, but I'm going to pull out two specific things that I want to key in on, and then we'll move through the rest of the text. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 17. It starts like this. For Christ 
did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Then he asks, Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. So there's a lot there. Two main things I want to key in on here. First, one major thing that Paul is saying in this text is that the gospel does not save people through the wisdom of the world. That's not the way the gospel saves. In fact, he says, the word of the cross, the gospel, is folly. It is foolishness to unbelievers. To those who are perishing, the gospel sounds foolish. But, to those who are being saved, it is certainly the power of God. And to prove his point, Paul asks the Corinthians a question. He says, hey listen, where are the really smart people in your church? Which could be insulting. Um, if you imagine this being read to the Corinthian church in the first century. Where are the smart people? Where are the academics? Where are the intellectuals? Where are the orators? The point, his point is that they are in very short supply. There's not a lot of them among you. And what they should gather from that is it wasn't your own wisdom that led you to trust in Jesus. Something else caused you to trust in Him. Something else caused you to love Him. Now the second thing we need to observe from this passage is that that power isn't an accident. You see the language he uses in verse 21. Paul says... This all happened in the wisdom of God. In other words, this is all God's design and plan. That natural wisdom would not be the key to knowing God, but rather supernatural wisdom would be. So this isn't an accident. This isn't a coincidence. God has a purpose in conducting salvation this way. Paul says, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. God was pleased to save people not through natural wisdom, not through worldly wisdom, but through folly, through the foolishness of the gospel. That's what pleased God. Now last week, we talked a lot about, when we were looking at the mystery, we talked a lot about the Jews and the Gentiles, these two major people groups, and how they're part of the mystery of Christ. And Paul is about to, in this text, engage both of those groups and he's about to explain why both of those groups naturally reject the gospel. Why both groups reject the word of the cross. Listen to verse 22 through 24. Paul says, this is the reason why they reject it. For Jews demand signs, and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews, 
and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So Paul says here, do you know why the world is unable to know God savingly, to know Christ as their Savior through their own wisdom? Here's why they're not able to do that. Jews demand signs, and Greeks, Gentiles, they seek wisdom. That's why. The Jews demand signs, and the Greeks seek wisdom, and now he's encompassing all people, no one's left out. This is why they reject God. The problem is, Paul says, we don't preach signs. We don't preach wisdom. We preach Christ crucified. We don't persuade people by showing them signs. And we don't persuade people by telling them something wise. We preach a crucified Savior, and this is a major problem for both those groups. For those who demand signs, a crucified Savior is a stumbling block. For those who seek wisdom, a crucified Savior is folly, it is foolishness. Now why is that the case? What's wrong with signs? What's wrong with seeking wisdom? Well, I want to look both at both of these, both the issue with Jewish demanding of signs and Greek Gentile seeking of wisdom. I want to look at both those in the Bible and see if there's context where we can understand why this is a malfunction in understanding God naturally. Matthew 12 gives us this story about Jews demanding signs. It says, Then some of the scribes and the Pharisees answered him, answered Jesus, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. But no sign will be given to you to it except the sign of, jo or the, sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks a sign. Now, why is that? What, what's so wrong with a sign? What if I am a first century Jew and all I need, all I honestly and genuinely need is to know, to know Jesus as a Messiah is some sort of proof, some little bit of evidence, some convincing thing that would tell me he's the Savior. And we know from John 12, 37 that signs from Jesus were not in short supply. He did many of them. So what's the big deal if these scribes and Pharisees are asking for one more sign? They were the spiritual elite of their day. <laughs> if anyone had a right to ask for it or demand it, it's them. Why does Jesus say asking it is evil? and adulterous. Here's why. They don't need a sign to know that he's the Messiah. They don't need him. Of all the Jewish people, the scribes and the Pharisees should have known Jesus the moment he appeared. But they didn't. Instead, they demanded a sign. Jesus Christ is the same exact God that they have been studying for decades. And when he appears, they don't see him. They don't see him as God, at least. Instead, they make a demand. They tell him, prove it to us. Show us a sign. 
if you're really him, Jesus, if you're really the Christ, show us a sign. I thought of an analogy that might be helpful here. Hopefully this one is helpful. Um, imagine if a husband came home to see his wife. And she stops him at the door. And she looks him head to toe. She can clearly see him. She is not medically or physically blind. She can see who he is. Yet she tells him, I don't believe you're him. So prove it to me. Provide me with some evidence and I will let you in as my husband. Show me a sign and I will call you my husband. You see how insulting that might be? Why, when Jesus says evil and adulterous, he's not exaggerating. They knew God enough to be able to say, they, they knew of what God should be enough to be able to say, when looking at Christ, you reflect Christ, God's image perfectly. But they didn't. They demanded a sign, and Jesus says, I will give you one. This is the sign I'm going to give you. I'm going to die and be buried. I'm going to die and be buried. This is the sign of Jonah. Jesus is preaching to them Christ crucified before it even happens. I'm going to die and be buried. <laughs> and this is a stumbling block for them because they think it's preposterous and insane. The Christ cannot die. The Messiah cannot die. The Christ is supposed to reign forever, according to the book of Sam 2 Samuel. How can you be the Christ and still die? And this is a stumbling block. And so they refuse to believe that he will die. They stumble and they fall. What about the Gentiles who seek wisdom? That's not a bad thing to seek wisdom, right? It's not a bad thing to have understanding or knowledge of something, especially if it benefits you and others. The kind of wisdom that Paul is referring to here isn't simply beneficial knowledge. The kind of wisdom that Paul is referring to here seeks to evaluate Christ on its own terms. It creates a human devised standard of the truth and then tests Christ's claims against it. So listen to this exchange between Jesus and Pilate in John 18. One of the most fascinating texts in all of the New Testament. It says, So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, So you are a king. Jesus answered, You say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I, came, I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. To which Pilate responds, what is truth? And then Pilate hands Jesus over to the executioners to be butchered. But he asks this question, which really gives us insight into his heart. 
what is truth? Think about what's happening here for a moment. Pilate is looking right straight into the eyes of Jesus of Nazareth. He is looking into the face of the Son of the living God, the sum of all truth. And his only response is, what is truth? Jesus did not meet Gentile criterion. You're not a king because everyone knows that a king on a cross, a Roman torture device, is no king at all. How can there be any truth in a dead king? His execution was demanded by a mob of his own people. To a Gentile, that is foolishness. You're not a king, the Greek would say. What kind of weak king is killed by his own people? And so for the Gentiles, the word of the cross is foolishness. Paul says this is the response by Jews and by Gentiles, by all of humanity, to the message, Christ crucified. Both Jews and Gentiles reject it. They will have none of it. But it's critical to note at this point that there is one major thing that both Jews and Gentiles have in common in their rejection of the gospel. Both requests, whether demanding signs or whether seeking wisdom, are designed to put God on trial. They are designed to force his back against the wall and say, you prove to me who you are. You prove to me. You show me a sign. You tell me something wise. I'll assess the evidence and I'll get back to you later. That's the posture of this response. And at this point, I think it's probably helpful for me to share a little bit of my story. I don't do this often. I don't like doing this often. Um, but I think this might be helpful. I grew up in the church, and I spent most of my early years in the church, very involved in the community that I grew up in. Um, And I had all the visible outward markings of a Christian young man. Um, But when I was in my teens, through a series of trials and difficulties with sin, and, and really one major event, my grandfather dying of cancer after... Uh, He had come to know Christ. Six months of chemotherapy and all sorts of treatments and me on my knees pleading with God to save him. And he dies. At that moment, I turned my back at the age of 17 on God and walked in the opposite direction and did not want anything to do with this God. I became an atheist functionally, And I was reading Nietzsche, I was reading Anton LaVey, I was reading every possible expression of anti-Christianity I could get my hands on. And I was denying Christ. I hated Christianity. I really did. I wanted nothing to do with it. And I knew enough of the Bible because I had grown up in the church to hurt people with it. And... um, My main issue with Christianity, if I were to argue with you, would be Nietzsche's issue with Christianity. Christians are weak because they have a weak leader. They have a weak savior. Crucified, a crucified Christ is a sad excuse for a God. And for me, it's a weak religion 
if their leader is pinned to a tree naked outside of Jerusalem, and that's the last that history records of him outside of the Gospels. That's a weak religion. Jesus did not meet my expectations, and therefore I rejected him. Just like the Jews, just like the Gentiles, I rejected Jesus Christ. This is not the end of the story, though. Look at what Paul says in 1 Corinthians one twenty four. He starts with, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. But to those who are called, what does Paul mean by this? In Paul's flow of thought, he's got rejection, 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 and then but. And he stops the rejection right there. And that stopping of the rejection is focused on one word. Called. Called. Those who are called. Both Jews and Greeks. There's no exclusivity here. There's a third category that's being introduced here irrespective of ethnicity, irrespective of culture, irrespective of race, and any other physical delineation. It says, for those who are called, Christ is not a stumbling block. Christ is not foolishness. He is instead the power of God and the wisdom of God. The only difference between that person for whom Christ, crucified Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God is this word called. That's the only difference we see here. Why? Well, Paul tells us in verse 25. He says, For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul says that rejection of the gospel by Jews and by Gentiles, by all of humanity, and the embracing of the gospel in faith by those who are called shows what? That God's foolishness is wiser than man's wisdom. It shows that God's weakness is stronger than man's strength. The message of Christ crucified is foolish to the entire world, but for us, for those who are called, it is the power of the living God. And it is the wisdom of the eternal, immutable God. The gospel is power. Romans 1.16, one of my favorite verses, says this, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul says, I am unashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation. This, this verse tells us two things. It says, first, there's a reason why Paul has to say he's unashamed. It's because when one actually does preach the gospel, shame is being invited into the conversation. Paul is not preaching an uncontroversial message. The gospel is considered foolish and goofy and absurd by the world. But Paul is saying here, you know what? I don't give a rip what people think of me. I am going to preach the gospel. And the reason I'm going to preach the gospel, the reason I refuse to be ashamed 
is because the, God, the gospel is God's power for salvation. It is God's power. For those who are called, the gospel is God's power. Now, so far, Paul has told them that God, in this 1 Corinthians text, God has saved his people by his own power. But now, as we enter the second part of this passage, he's going to explain to them why it is God did it this way. Why did God do it this way? Why does God reveal the mystery of the gospel to his saints in this way? Paul starts to tell us in verse 26. Listen to this. He says, For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to, bring shame, to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God chose. Do you see how this is different than the other scheme in the first half of this passage? The Jews want a sign. Why do they want a sign? So they can choose. The Gentiles want wisdom from their Christ. Well, why do they want wisdom? So they can choose. But this text doesn't say that. This text says that God's design for salvation is that God chose. God chose what is foolish. God chose what is weak. And he did it for a reason. He had a purpose in doing it. It says here, he did it to shame the wise who were demanding signs and seeking wisdom. To shame the strong who would regard a crucified Christ as weak and worthless. And if I'm honest with you, that was me. That was me. Christ was weak and worthless for me. And for me, it wasn't a sign that ultimately changed my opinion. It wasn't a rhetorical argument. It wasn't an apologetic that ultimately caused me to come back to him. You know what it was? I grabbed a Bible, my 1997 high school graduation Bible, picked it up and started reading it and said, if you're real, you need to show me yourself. Not a sign. I want to know you're real from your word. And in my reading, Christ became wisdom and power from God. I had zero faith in him, zero faith in him. And God became more real to me than anything else. Don't be confused. There were many things in my life that God was doing at that time. I look back on it and I say there were dozens of things that he was doing in my life to bring me back in there. But what tipped the scales for me was that I saw the glory of Jesus Christ in his word. I saw the glory of Christ in the word of the cross. He, and he owned me. When I saw it, he owned me and I had fallen deeply in love with him. And Paul says here that God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. When God looked down on me, it wasn't because I was wise. It wasn't because I was strong. He chose my complete bankruptcy and absence of wisdom. My absence of strength, of nobility, of wealth, of all the different categories that you can conceive of that should commend me before God according to the world's standards. 
And in doing that, in choosing that lack of wisdom, that lack of strength, God nullified and brought to nothing all of those categories. He said, when it comes to salvation, those are not of any value. Wisdom and strength nullified. They are brought to nothing. And for what purpose? Why was God so interested in removing those categories from the conversation of salvation? Paul says in verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. God is telling us, no human being will boast before me. Not a single human. And to make sure, I will choose the weak. I will choose the foolish. I will choose those who are unable, completely unable to boast. And what that means is the ultimate reason I was saved by God and we were saved by God is because of God. I didn't bring anything to the table. Jesus says to his disciples in John 15, 16, You did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Jesus says, you didn't choose me. You think you chose me. But I chose you. And in Luke 10, 21 through 22, this amazing parable, or this amazing prayer that we get insight into between Jesus and the Father it says in, in uh, Luke 10, t- verse 21, in that same hour, Jesus, he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit and said, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father and no one who knows who the Son is except the Father, or who the Son is except the Son, and anyone whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus says to God the Father, for such was your gracious will. Why is it gracious that God would hide himself from the wise and reveal himself to little children? Why is that gracious? Here's why. Because little children are completely helpless. They are weak and they are foolish and they cannot boast before God. Listen to how Paul finishes his argument in 1 Corinthians triumphantly. He says, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Paul says, and because of him, because of God, you are in Christ Jesus. Literally in the Greek, it means from God. Your salvation came from God. Paul is saying, God did this. This is from him. God grafted us into Christ Jesus, and he saved us by his own power. He became for us wisdom from God. He became righteousness to us. He became sanctification to us. He became redemption to us. When we came to Christ, we did not bring wisdom and discernment with us. The only thing people who are redeemed by Christ bring to Christ, the only thing they bring to the table, is spiritual poverty and sin. That's it. The act of salvation individually in our lives 
was an act of God's great, deep, powerful love and kindness. And it came from one place alone, the heart of God. It came from the heart of God. And this was done in such a way that the one who boasts will boast in one thing alone, the Lord. He did it. It's all him. There are three reasons why this truth is so important and so profound for us to get, especially as we make our way through the rest of Colossians. Here are the three things that I want to point out about this truth. This truth, when it is properly understood and embraced and loved, fuels unwavering confidence. This truth, when it is properly embraced and loved, emboldens unashamed witness. And number three, it ignites endless worship. I'm going to go through each of these and unpack them. It fuels unwavering confidence, it emboldens unashamed witness, and it ignites endless worship. Number one, it it fuels unwavering confidence. How does it do that? If it is really because of God that we are in Christ, if it's really because of that, if we bring nothing to the table and nothing we bring commends us to God, only his mercy, we are there because he loves us alone, not because of anything we've done. This means that no one, absolutely no one can undo God's work here because we didn't earn it. We didn't do anything to make it happen. John 10 says this, So the Jews gathered around him, Jesus, and they said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. And no one, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's unwavering confidence. He has us. He has us, and he's not going to let go. Number two, this truth is precious because it emboldens unashamed witness. When people hear that God is the one who reveals himself, and it's not natural wisdom, sometimes the response is, why is that fair? How is that fair? Why doesn't everybody get the same treatment, the same shake? Why is it a revelation from God that has to cause it to happen in our hearts? But what I think we don't realize is if it was our own wisdom and our own strength that brought us to God, if it was our own discretionary decision-making faculties to choose Christ, no one would be saved. No one would be saved. Jesus says in John 6, 63, the flesh is of no help at all. Natural wisdom will not do it. It will not take us there. We would demand signs. Yes, we would. We would seek wisdom and then we would choose another Savior. And then we would die in our sin, and not a single person would be saved. But if God determines by his gracious will, as Jesus says, who he reveals himself to, if he can really open our eyes 
the blindness of our eyes, and graft us into Christ, then it means something very profound. It means that no one is too far gone for God to save. Not a single human being is too far gone for God to save. No one. (laughs) He is not bound. He is not shackled. He is not weak to save. He is completely free and he has all right and authority. And so we go to our God and we plead with him with tears in our eyes for people to be saved. We preach the gospel far and wide, but for our friends and our family members and for those God's placed in our lives, we go to him and we ask him, save my friend, save my uncle, save my brother, save my son. That's how we do it. And when we do that, we can be confident that God can take even the most hardened sinner and he can light them on fire for Christ Jesus in a heartbeat. No one is too far gone. That gives us reason to have unashamed, emboldened witness. Number three is this. This is the most precious for me. If this truth is true, if it really is how God saves people, it ignites endless worship. Let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. The natural man, us before Christ, is far worse off than we really think. I think we're kind of drawn into this idea that we can mollify how much unbelief is in us and sort of come to this position. We're in a neutral space. That's not the the story that the Bible has us. We are far worse off. We have greater depths of unbelief than even we realize. Even from our birth, we are headed towards a joyless eternity of conscious torment. But it says in Ephesians 2 that God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. We are far worse sinners than we want to believe, but here's the deal. We are far more loved than we can possibly imagine. Far more loved than we can possibly imagine. That's why Paul says it is because of him that we are in Christ Jesus. The Son of God hung on a tree until every ounce of our sin, every ounce of our sin, past, present, and future, was paid for. He refused to come down. He refused until it was all satisfied. And even then, he still wasn't done with us. He still had to come to us in history personally and change us. So what kind of love is this that not only saves us by embracing God's just and holy wrath on the cross until he's completely consumed by it, but he comes back for us. That's the love that we're dealing with. He loved you. Don't think about anybody else in this room. Don't think about anybody else on this planet. Think about you yourself. He loved you. He found you. He chose you. We don't worship a God of our own choosing. That's how the world worships. Our relationship with God is not a result of our own wisdom. It is a result of his mercy. No one will say on the last day, I chose you, God. I'm glad I chose you. You were the product of my own decision. Our God did not wait for us to find him because he knew we never would. 
He came back for us, and he came for us individually. Christ found me and found you at your lowest possible point. When things were the most bleak and the darkest, in the middle of all of your sin, and he lifted your head up, looked into your eyes, and said, you're mine. I choose you. I will save you, I will redeem you, and I will uphold you by my right hand. We're going to worship here and take communion in a moment, and I want us, as we, if you're a believer, you are welcome to this table. I want us, as we consider the cross of Christ and what was broken and shed on that tree, I want us to recognize how deep his love was for us individually. I want us to recognize how deep his love was for you, your name, your face in his mind. 1 Peter 3.18 says, the ultimate purpose of the cross and really the ultimate purpose of all reality is that we might be brought to Christ or brought to God by Christ at the end. It said that Christ suffered once for sins in order that he might bring us to God. That's why the cross happened. That's why all reality happens. God is our reward in the end. God is the hope of glory. He is our reward. He is our treasure. And let me tell you, he is ferocious about ensuring the value of that treasure. About ensuring the value of that reward. About ensuring its boastworthiness. So I want you to revel in the fact that God's done it this way. That our eyes have been opened to the beauty of the gospel. That God loved us and sought us individually. And we are his forever. Forever. Because of that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I am so grateful for opportunities on Sundays where we get to gather together, Father, and taste just a fraction of what it will be like for eternity. Where our hearts rise into ever-increasing throes of joy and adulation because of the glory of God the Father in Christ Jesus. Father, I pray that even now, as we contemplate your gracious will, the opening of our eyes to see you, that we would be so profoundly moved by that, Father, that it would, it would ignite in us endless worship that would start today that we would contemplate the beauty and the glory of Christ Jesus. And he stayed on that tree until it was all paid, and he didn't stop there. He came to us in the middle of our lives and said, I will have you as a son. I will have you as a daughter. You are mine. I will rescue you. I will take you for myself. And so I pray, Father God, that you would 
glorify your name in the worship and communion and the fellowship that we have for the rest of our time together, together today and that we would be moved by the, by the love that you show us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.